0: Hello and welcome to People, Places, Power with me, Nick Cull.
1: And me, Simon Anholt.
0: In this podcast, we think about issues of international reputation, foreign policy and a few other things along the way. And today we are thinking about one of the major problems of our world right now and how that problem relates to issues of national identity, and soft power. And the particular problem that we're tackling today is uh, the problem of disinformation and fake news, as some people have called it. So how do we start to unpack this um, problem? Uh, Simon, well, where do you think we should begin thinking about um uh, this 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 challenge of state-sponsored disinformation and fake news.
1: Well, where I'm tempted to start um, is is by taking a dig at the majority of national governments out there who, under the guise um, or under the disguise of quote unquote nation branding, are amongst the most heinous propagandists on the planet, in the sense that. <laughs> They're spending every day vast amounts of taxpayers' money sending out messages which may or may not be true. Um, and that I would I regard as being a species of fake news um, because so often the messages are in contrast or in conflict with the, with the reality of the country and the reality of its intentions and its behaviour. So I think that's probably where I'd start off. Before um, national governments start talking in a pious fashion about um, th- this dreadful post truth age in which we live, they should look at themselves and see how much of that they're
0: actually responsible for. But I think. Yeah, well, that's a provocative beginning, but I would contend that there's a difference between accentuating the positive and. You know, putting a good shine on things in your external messaging of, of the kind that we've been used to in the post Cold War environment and the um, thing that burst on the international scene in 2014, which was an aggressive assault on the know ability. If you like, if we could coin that as a term, our ability to understand what is happening in international affairs, and I'm thinking particularly about the uh, first U- the uh, Ukraine crisis, the the um, uh, Russian um, invasion of Ukraine, and the way in which that whole uh, incident was was dressed up in all kinds of confusing um, messaging. And it seemed to me at the time that the world really was not ready for that brazen distortion of news truth in uh, in world affairs.
1: Yeah. But but before we get on to that, I I, I would just quickly respond, of course, um, I'm not suggesting that there's an equivalence, uh, moral or any other sort, between a country saying, look at our lovely beaches and please don't look at the polluted ones. On the one hand, and Vladimir Putin on the other hand, saying that he's he's uh, rescuing he's saving um, good Russian speakers from uh, from Nazi fascists in Ukraine. However, I don't think that those are um, I don't think that those there's a category difference between the two. I think it's a continuum, and you know somewhere in the middle, for example, you have what we were talking about in another episode of the podcast, the greenwashing that many governments undertake where they're deliberately sending out messages um, that try to make it look as if they're environmentally friendly when the truth Mm -hmm. really is the opposite. And I think when you look at those sorts of cases, you begin to see that actually perhaps this is, if not a slippery slope, at least a continuum um, between um, deliberate, what used to unfortunately be called black propaganda, um, or or, uh, at any rate, um, deliberate lies um and sort of favorable presentation of the truth i think that's a i think that's a continuum but 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 we can move on from there and and your point i think about um the the way in which this is now being presented to the public and the way that the public is being increasingly prepared for it uh, that's an interesting thing to debate
0: well i um i i my Response around propaganda is that if a state is going to use those kinds of methods, if they're going to introduce any kind of distortion into international news, they run a risk. It's like borrowing money. Somebody has to pick up the bill at the end of the day. And uh, you never know quite how that bill is going to be. Uh, presented. Um, you know, what, one of the a good example of this would be the way in which this old Soviet Union distorted reporting of Chernobyl, um, initially holding back the news and then trying to put it forward in a favorable way. When, when the truth was going to be there eventually, uh, it, it just made the government um, look bad. Uh, and, and suggested that it wasn't taking care of its, its, its citizens. And maybe it's easier to see the, the price of distortion uh, if we go even further back in history. And it, it's always seemed to me that the um, exaggerations that were possible uh, about Germany during the First World War uh, in both government communication and in the, the, the propaganda um, uh, in, in uh, Western newspapers uh, this um, had a, a price late, later. on, when uh, uh, the the, uh, the genuine atrocities began happening during during World War II, were, were not believed as they would have been uh, if, if it hadn't been for that um, uh, distortion or exaggeration of uh, of truth during during the First World War. So uh, I, I I absolutely agree that there's a connection uh, between any distortion of the truth, no matter how nobly it may be conceived, it's not a good idea. Conversely, I think it is an excellent thing for uh, the reputation of a country to be associated with, a, if you like, a gift of balanced news to the world, a gift of transparency, an investment in honesty and um, I, you know, I know from my own work how appreciated, for example, the BBC World Services in so many places. Um, and uh, it, it's just a tremendous part of Britain's presence in, in the world. And, you know, you can see how other countries' um, uh, balanced news uh, has also uh, been very much appreciated. It's just maybe it's because I'm uh, I, I'm of British origin that, that the BBC is the one that people talk to me uh, most ab- about.
1: Yes. But how, how does the, the BBC earn that reputation? Is it, uh, is, it a, is it a brand thing that people just trust it because they trust it because of the name? Or is it something in the way that they behave that perhaps other news media don't? How does the truth get out?
0: But well, I think part good. of it seems to me to be a willingness on the part of the BBC to uh, give the news when the news is bad, including bad news about Britain. And certainly uh, British reporting of its own disadvantage during World War Two seems to have laid a foundation for this and even to have turned round uh, a reputation that britain had before the second world war as you know a a, a country that lied about stuff yeah. um, uh, if, if that, uh, if, that if, that's, if
1: that's one of the effective approaches then it's very easy to 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 fake or simulate or at least manage that in the same way that um, you, you know if you've uh, if you've captured the enemy's uh, uh, s- uh, crypto machine uh, cryptographic machinery Um, you can send them uh, valueless information and occasionally valuable information um, so that they don't realise there's anything going on and they trust you. In the same way, a nation could occasionally appear to criticise itself, if that's a way of earning Mm -hmm. the trust of publics, uh, even though what it's actually giving them is valueless, um, not real. Well, to be
0: honest, honest, Simon, my suspicion is that when Churchill was initially directing um the, you know the uh, BBC and uh, himself revealing uh, bad things he had this idea, i think he had the idea that if you were honest with with uh, enough of the time then the day that you needed to be dishonest you could slip one past the uh, international opinion uh, yes. but i don't think that's how it works now i think that because this became baked into an institutional culture it is really difficult for the state to uh, claw back um, uh, editorial control. And I I know this happened during the um, uh, Gulf War. Um, You know, I happened to have a short conversation with Greg Dyke and I asked him about his relationship with Tony Blair. And he said, well, to be honest, uh, Tony Blair gave me a call and asked me to begin, but be more sympathetic. And I said, what did you say to Tony Blair? And uh, I'll spare uh, audiences of this podcast the exact language that uh, BBC director Greg Dyke used to uh, Tony Blair, but uh, shall we say it was similar to the language used by the defenders of Snake Island in the recent uh, uh, Green War. Um, uh, and, but I think that, that having that ability to rebuff a government attempt at at, at editorial control, at least a government suggestion of partisanship, is is very important. Um, But but it it sets up all kinds of difficulties um, for the BBC, because here you have this part of British uh, soft power, but also its credibility comes from an oppositional relationship or a, a, a non-favoring relationship to the uh, government and the government sometimes seems to punish the BBC for that. Yes. So it, it, it pays an internal price for its objectivity.
1: Yes. It, it's worth, worth pointing out, of course, that... <clears throat> Our, uh, the position that we're, we're positing here, that um, one of the ways of earning uh, a, a good reputation and earning the trust of people is by occasionally criticising yourself and your own institutions. It's not, that's not universally believed to be a good approach. And uh, in fact, if you talk to Chinese commentators uh, about the way that Britain presents itself and the British media presents Britain, they think we're absolutely bonkers um, that we seem to spend so much of our energy, energy criticising ourselves. Um, and the, I think the Chinese view uh, is that that's part of the weakness of Western-style democracy and its evidence of the downfall of Western civilizations uh, that our news media and our other outlets and commentators do nothing but stab ourselves in the back. And uh, they don't see that as a clever technique or a means of earning trust at all. They see that as suicide and a lack of control on the part of government. So is, that, to be is honest, that a cultural we, difference?
0: Yeah, but to be honest, we tried it the other way. You know, we had the, the a 19th century of chest beating and um, being convinced that we were God's representatives on earth and all that sort of claptrap. And... How did that work out for us? I I, I think that self-criticism is a, um, a, a a better model. But you know, I what my response to what you're saying is that there is an agenda here for research, and one of the things that we really need to understand is what does world opinion actually think. Because we tell ourselves stories, we perceive reactions to both uh, honesty and balanced news on the one hand and assume reactions to distortion and fake news, state-sponsored disinformation on the other. But do we really know? Right. And I-, I think that growing out of this, we have a, um, some quite important... Uh, guidance for uh, public diplomacy strategies. So let me put it this way: if if we knew for sure that international audiences were repelled by a state being involved in in, in fake news, then we would know that that was a sound uh, rhetorical approach for. Uh, other countries to follow to point out but country X is involved in disinformation is involved in, in, in yes. dissembling
1: I, I exactly the point I was going to make when you when you referred to uh, the 19th century British habit of chess beating and how that didn't work well didn't it work um, Britain did after all manage to build one of the largest empires in history and so a lot of the propaganda was evidently not ineffective. And I think perhaps the sensation that that approach disproved itself is true in relation to ourselves, Um, that we ourselves in the West have reached a stage where we're no longer convinced by chest beating, but it's pretty clear that in other countries where chest beating is the normal approach, people are still convinced by it. And it's so much, I think, a question of what you're used to. And uh, if, for example, the um, Chinese Communist Party was suddenly to start launching into uh, self-immolation and self-harm and self-criticism, chances are it would lose all credibility and respect amongst the Chinese population who are uh, used to a very different set of signals coming from their leaders. So I think these things are always anthropologically uh, directed. And as you rightly say, Uh, one has to research these things properly rather than using one's own response as a model for them. Um, No no question about that at all. Um, Where where we were talking earlier, I think, was was rather interesting about um, specifically in the context of the the, uh, invasion of Ukraine uh, by Russia and the um, attempts that have been made to in a sense inoculate uh, the public against the fake news, which is which is due to come. And you were giving some interesting examples of, of, of how that worked.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's the, 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 that's correct. Um, uh, I think part of Putin's miscalculation around Ukraine has been that he was overly encouraged by his use of fake news and distortion uh, in in twenty fourteen. And that in the period after 2014, a lot has been done, or since 2014, a lot has been done to prepare the world for this kind of um, attack. And uh, to me, one of the signs that things were coming under control was the response to the um, uh, the Salisbury uh, case, the the Russian uh, chemical warfare attack on. Um, uh, on Skripal and his and, and his his daughter, um, the Foreign Office response to that attack was to collect all of the messages put out by the Russian embassy, and there were something like thirty of them, and they were contradictory, and they were making claims. It wasn't the Russians. Uh, it was, or, or it was Skripal's mother-in-law uh, trying to murder her, um, her her son-in-law as a result of an old family feud. And the contradictory nature of these um, officially made uh, Russian embassy claims really showed uh, uh, the absence of any regard for truth and exposed the embassy's strategy and. Uh, we can see that that worked at least in diplomatic circles because there was no traction at all given internationally to Russian claims of uh, a denial and the European Union uh, rallied behind collective punishment of um, uh, Russia for that uh, atrocity, um, uh, even though it was happening at a moment of uh, Brexit and uh, difficult relations with the European uh, Union. Um, uh, but then you, and then you flash forward to the run-up to the Ukraine war uh, to the, the, the invasion this year. And it's very um, uh, I, I think very um, uh, noteworthy how um, uh, intelligence services usually so quiet and uh, standoffish, Uh, in in their uh, public statements, uh, made it clear what we were to expect from Russia. Um, This strategy has has been called pre-bunking, the idea that you predict what is going to be said, and by um, uh, predicting it, you both prepare the population for what is to come. So in the case of uh, the Ukraine war, it was a prediction of false flag operations and allegations of uh, provocation uh, uh, against Russia by U- Ukraine. Uh, and then uh, the, the two things happen. The population is prepared for those messages. And when the perpetrator nation goes ahead and uses those techniques anyway, they are digging a hole for themselves because they' they're showing that you're reliable and they're dishonest. So uh, they become um, victims of their own um, method and this seemed to work really effectively during the early weeks um, of, of the of the of the war
1: three three thoughts occur to me there um, the first one is specifically on the case of the disinformation, the contradictory disinformation published by the russian embassy um first question i can well believe that that was effective as you say in diplomatic circles but the the general public um obviously is in a rush obviously this is only occupying a tiny part of their of their worldview at any given moment and the truth is so often more complicated than the falsehoods and in order to understand and to believe that the Russian embassy is giving out fake information, you'd need to read the 30 versions and you'd need to mm. notice that they're contradictory. And I just wonder how That's many right. readers of an ordinary newspaper would even bother to get past the second one. Having said that, on the other hand, as we all, as we know in the, the, these situations, that very often less important than the content of the message is the credibility of the messenger. And amongst a UK audience, for example, anything coming out of the Russian embassy, particularly under these circumstances in a time of war, is going to be discredited. So perhaps it hardly even matters what you say. The the statements of the Russian embassy will be disbelieved on principle because their negative brand, if you like, goes before them. but I think there's a there's a there's a larger point here, and and here I'm thinking more of the prebunking, wonderful word, uh, the, the false flag uh, um, initiatives and all the rest of it. Yes, it's a victory of sorts if the intelligence services prepare the public to mistrust the messages before they even come out. But isn't it rather a Pyrrhic victory because in the end, what that's contributing to? is further erosion of people's trust in any message. And yes, you can succeed in making people thoroughly mistrust messages coming from the enemy, and that's relatively easy to do because it's the enemy. But there's a longer process going on, created by both sides in all of these conflicts, which is a general race to the bottom, where everybody gets to the stage where they no longer believe that they can trust or believe anything they hear from anybody. Because after all, it's a government we've also got a government a lot of people in the West would say what's the difference um, and, and so I think we need to step back a moment to say okay there are tactics that appear to be useful in the short term which when you're on a war footing is essential but in the larger sense of where society is going what can we do if anything to prevent that increasing erosion of trust in any form of reported truth by any form of Authority Are we getting to the stage where the only thing that people trust is, uh, for example, commercial communications uh, because we know what their agenda is, they're trying to sell us something?
0: Well, I think there's a lot to what you say, uh, in fact. And um, the longer game of Kremlin media policy seems to be not what it was in the Cold War, which was to sell... An alternative truth, uh, a truth based on Marxist-Leninism, but rather to question the idea of truth altogether and to put out so many contradictory messages exactly. that one just doesn't know what is true. And in the absence of truth, the thing you trust is absolute strength. So if you work for the strongest guy in the room, why even bother with uh, truth? Truth is your uh, is your opponent, if you like, um, the best thing to do is to um, make everybody doubt everything and just step into the void with strength and physical assertion. And, and that's, that. Uh, you know, uh, somebody like, for example, Peter Pomerantzev has argued this as uh, uh, Putin's core strategy, I think, very effectively. And you can see how uh, a lot of Kremlin media uh, uh, bears, this, uh, bears this out
1: uh yeah or, or to, to put it another way um the the purveyors of fake news Russia in this case have 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 won the battle before it even starts because we're trapped they've forced us to play an opposition role and as our opposition role we attempt to debunk their stories in debunking their stories we increase uh, the uh, we augment the erosion of truth and the uh, and the and the erosion of of uh, of, of credibility on all sides. So, whatever we do, we're playing their game.
0: But the way that we short circuit this is through a range of responses that would include building free media and capacity for free media at local levels in, in, in vulnerable places. So, I, I think rather than just um, responding through uh, one size fits all state sponsored media, uh, from our side, um, helping uh, empowering uh, communities around the world to, to develop their own media uh, shuts Kremlin sources out. Uh, you know, the only reason people need Kremlin media is because they don't have their own um, local relevant news sources uh, 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 to trust. So strategies that are building free media – uh, among communities around the world I think are more effective than our uh, attempts to um, be free media on their behalf and maybe there's a there's a there's a starting point where we are models of free media but there's no substitute in the long run for actually fostering free media uh, yes. a- around the world and that has to be the best antidote
1: so so in a in a metaphorical and at the same time literal sense this is the blockchain argument isn't it um, if, you, if you distribute the provision of truth to the nth degree, um, it becomes almost automatically incorruptible. Um, so moving away from centralized sources of media, just like moving away from centralized sources of, 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 of banking power, uh, mm-hmm. you make the system stronger. The trouble is, we go back to the fact that it still requires more work and more effort on the part of the individual citizen to pick and choose and learn to trust or to mistrust from those thousands of other sources. And anyway, as long as governments are still around, they're going to try and prevent this from happening because it's yes. so much against their interests. They don't, no government on earth, I would suggest, actually wants the whole truth and nothing but the truth to be out there. They want it to be their truth. And, you know, even, even, um, e- even a, a highly moral government, if there is such a thing, still wants and feels it needs to have a measure of control over the way in which things are presented. They wouldn't want to abdicate uh, control uh, altogether uh, in, in, in that way. So it's not straightforward, is it? If it, and, and in a sense, that's what the internet has started to give us, that everybody is potentially an independent source of news or at least commentary. And we know the other problems that that brings. You can say goodbye to competent, reliable journalism, you can say goodbye to quality. You can say goodbye to research. The fact of the matter is that the BBC has got the funding to research its stories properly. It costs a lot of money to do good, uh, good news. Um, and if we end up with this fractionalization, fragmentation of news sources, it's likely that the quality will go down uh, and the reliability and everything else with it.
0: Well, I certainly think that everybody's become their own editor and you can see how people are distributing the material that they find uh, most credible. But in a way, that then gives us an opportunity to uh, in- encourage people to make the right choices and to take the kind of individual editorial responsibilities that would have once been taken uh, um, would have once been taken centrally. But yeah. but you know, my question here is what? Where does this leave? commercial news organizations hmm. who um, uh, do, do we think of Rupert Murdoch as being an international actor in his own right uh, or is he an adjunct of the country of which he is a citizen um, do we see commercial news as 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 damaging uh, international reputations uh, or as fr- free-floating uh, players what what do you make of it
1: Mm. Um, well, these are the, these are big questions, aren't they? Um, I think where people have communicative power, as 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 Murdoch does, they end up being courted by nation states, uh, just as nation states uh, court uh, celebrities and VIPs or anybody who has any kind of uh, authority or following or, or, or mandate. Um, and we end up with a, a an international arena where Actually, nationality is uh, fungible and purchasable. Um, and uh, it's basically just uh, nation states bidding for the credibility and the share of voice that they can get uh, from paying individual actors, whether those are publishers or sports exactly. celebrities. Witness the, uh, the bruhaha at the moment because of uh, countries like Saudi Arabia paying uh, footballers. Uh, to uh, to to endorse them in a mm-hmm. purely sporting way but buying credibility in 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 that way so it's an open marketplace for credibility and the reason why it's a marketplace is because we always come back to this point in the end most people haven't got the time the energy or in many cases the skills uh, or the motivation they feel to sift through all of those uh, microscopically varying Uh, Mm -hmm. interpretations of what's actually going on. So in the end, uh, it's the shortcut that wins. Somebody once defined Mm -hmm. a brand as a a shortcut to an informed purchasing decision. And I think there's a very good, uh, there's a a, a very strong element of truth in that. People want and need shortcuts because they've got so many other things to think about which are generally more important. And at the end of the day, to use the horrible cliche, it's uh, the, the, the most convenient shortcut uh, that will end up uh, representing the truth. Um, and that's why, right. in a sense, we all have to understand how these processes work and be good branders, because if we're not, then we may have the truth, but we won't succeed
0: in getting the truth heard. And extending from that, it's why it's so important to ensure the quality of, of the brand, the integrity of the brand, And uh, I think when you look at the world today, same way there's a crisis and investment flies to gold. So uh, you can see how um, uh, media attention is shifting to the most historically reliable outlets and audiences for the BBC, for example, are uh, rising, risen dramatically, even in even in uh, Russia. And I I think uh, that means that it's it becomes essential to protect and invest in uh, these uh, reliable and respected uh, sources of balanced news and it means it's crazy for uh, the current british government to be talking about reigning in the bbc cutting funding to the bbc messing with Uh, the BBC when it's one of the things that I think demonstrably makes the world a better place
1: Yes Stepping back a moment from this, it's probably not in the end a bad thing, assuming we can get through all this, if the human species once in a while suffers from existential doubts of this sort and this is a moment in history where we've got a cluster of existential doubts that are keeping us all awake at night and if we start asking these philosophical questions in the form of real urgent questions. Who do we trust? What is truth? How can we believe what we see or hear or read? I think that's a good thing, potentially, because from uh, only from doubt can come more certainty. What we need, what we must hope and try to avoid is that just turning into a spiral of despair and nihilism, where we just end up saying... There's no possibility of ever knowing what we can believe in, so it's safest to believe in nothing at all. And that's where a great many people seem to be heading at the moment. It could go the other way. It could go in a constructive way, which says, great, we're questioning things, and that's a good thing to do. It's always the prelude to a better understanding is when you start doubting, as every philosopher who's ever lived has told us. But I think ultimately, in the end, uh, just like every other important issue connected with humanity, it comes back to education. And the real reason why we're finding it so difficult to cope uh, with this environment is because we haven't been educated in the right ways. Yes. And if only we could just learn quickly within a generation to bring up children, not in the West, not in the East, but everywhere, to give them the right intellectual tools to navigate this increasingly complicated world, to to learn that it's their job and their duty and a task they must perform to sift the truth, to ask questions, to look at different sources. The only reason why people find that so difficult today was because they were never taught to do it as children, and they see it as an imposition and a nuisance. But if you're brought up knowing that that's your job as a human being, it would be entirely different, and you might even take pleasure in it.
0: No, well, this is uh, I'm absolutely in agreement with that. And the the example that, that comes to mind, uh, maybe as we finish uh, off this, this particular conversation, is the, the words of the British statesman uh, Robert Lowe when he uh, was commenting on, on the great reform uh, bill in the middle of the 19th century, the bill that made Britain a, a mass democracy for the first time. And he said, well... Democracy, if you will, but we must educate our masters. And where we have democracy, as we have democracy around the world, it's essential that people are empowered to make uh, decisions and not just given enough media to uh, vote for um, the the immediate uh, party of the moment. Um, uh, Citizenship and democracy require um, uh, it require education and we now live at a moment where this has to be a global education including global media literacy yes well i think that that was a fun one simon <laughs> uh, and um uh, thank you so much for listening and um i'm still nick cole and i
1: think i'm still simon Anhalt.